G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Ryan. Good to be with you. How are you today? I'm going well. I've, uh, oh, I'm, I'm feeling pretty tired at the moment, Dad, with, uh, with the World Cup on at the moment, but I'm, I'm very much enjoying it all and, and very much uh, looking forward to today's podcast, which we've called Heeding the Need to Ask for Help. So, Dad, do you want to just give us a, a bit of a brief rundown at first? What are we going to be talking about today? Okay, well, one of the main things we're thinking about today is how help-seeking is a skill. It's actually a resourceful thing sometimes to seek and accept help. And so the idea behind this episode actually came from an incident that happened when your mum and I were on holiday on Lord Howe Island and we went on this bushwalk, which was potentially quite a treacherous bushwalk. And it actually turned out that someone did come to grief and needed help in a different way. And what happened is we were climbing Mount Gower, which is four hours up and it's four hours down and some parts are so steep, it's like a vertical wall for about 10, 15 metres where you actually have to pull yourself up on ropes and then again descend, climbing down with your feet against the wall on ropes, almost like a reverse abseiling kind of thing coming down. And one hour down from the top of the mountain... The fellow behind me, about 50 metres back, he fell because I heard this cry and then swearing and then you hear this voice like, help, you knew this guy was in trouble. So anyway, it took me about a minute or two to get back to him because it was steep and rocky and difficult kind of thing and I see he's just fallen off the edge of the track down a small ravine and he knows he's broken his ankle. He says, look... I've broken my ankle. I heard it snap. Like, oh gosh, this is three hours to go getting down the mountain in the best of circumstances. He was in real trouble. Now the point is, the guy was going to need help and he did. In the end, it took 16 SES workers on Lord Howe Island and a couple of guides and first aid person and others to help this guy down. They didn't get him down till three o'clock in the morning when it was one o'clock in the afternoon this happened about 14 hours later but what struck me is while he's down this little ravine it was a guide and I had to sort of pull him up to the edge of the track and he's just saying I'm sorry I'm sorry his wife's there as well I'm sorry and you're thinking well what has he done wrong is there nothing that he's intended to do he's in this really difficult kind of situation but he can envisage how difficult it was going to be to help get him down. And he was feeling really terrible about this. He's finding it hard to accept the help that he was going to need. But what struck me is how much help was available. Fortunately, there are a few doctors in our walking group of 15 people and one of them came back and there was a first aider in our group who came back, someone who also was in our group got wind of what had happened and he ran down the track to find a first aid kit and ran back up, taking, I don't know, 40 minutes of running to try and reach him where he was. There was all this help that was available, but he's finding it so hard to accept. And so the thing that struck me with that is also how difficult it is often for people to accept help with a mental health problem. But sometimes people are in a situation where they're just going to need help. Like, for example, someone might be in the throes of a severe depression. Someone might be so troubled by their post-traumatic stress that they can't sleep properly. There might be a person who's had a psychotic episode. There are times 
where for mental health reasons people need help in a more of an emergency, but there are also times which is maybe a little less severe or less serious than that, but people can still do with help. And I'm just wondering how much are we inhibited from seeking that mental health support, even talking with a friend or confidant or seeing a GP or accepting help from others, looking to draw on that support, how much is that because we're trying to be too stoic or have a sense of shame or think I shouldn't have had that accident or think I shouldn't have been in that position or I feel bad about the burden I'm imposing on other people. I was just thinking there might be parallels. Now, when it's a physical injury, like this guy had his broken ankle, you can't help it. Everyone's going to see it. He can't do anything anyway except for call out. When you have a physical crisis like that, people are going to know and you're going to get help. But what about for a mental health problem? What's going to happen then? What if people keep it to themselves? What if they don't call out help like he was forced to do in the end? If it's a mental health problem, you're not necessarily forced to call out help in the same way. But maybe similarly, we need to accept the fact that, okay, I'm in a situation, I'm struggling so much, I don't have the means to help get myself out of this predicament. I'm going to need to ask for help. And I might as well accept it in some way. And the other thing we're trying to get across from this story is there going to be other people only too willing to help in whatever way they can. Just like so many people mobilise to help this fellow and get him down the mountain. The chances are in our social world, in our families, friendship groups or in our community, there's likely to be help there if we're going to be open to it, ask for it and accept it. Well, I think that's so true, Dad, and there's a, there's a fair bit to unpack there, which, which we will look to do throughout today's podcast. But, but I suppose there's just a couple of main things that come to mind. And, and the first one is that, look, I'll put my hand up and I'll say that in some ways I feel I can speak from experience here, Dad, because I'm pretty terrible at asking for help in some ways. Like I'm, I'm sure you'd know this, and a lot of my friends point this out to me on the, on the occasion that, uh, you know, it's not my natural tendency at times to ask for help in a situation. And it's interesting as you were describing that there, that, you know, that fella who'd broken his ankle, like in many ways, that's an objective situation that someone needs assistance in, you know, like you're not going to be able to necessarily get yourself off that mountain unless you crawl down if you've got a broken ankle. But even in that situation, when it's so clear cut in many ways, his reaction in that situation was that, in many ways, he had difficulty accepting that he was a burden to everyone else around him. And as you say, with, say, mental health and, and issues to do with mental health, unlike physical health, you can hide it, even when you're feeling quite down within yourself. So, you know, what that suggests to me, if someone's in a situation, you know, it's, it's quite obvious that they do need help, and it seems that they still probably would try and hide it if it wasn't so obvious. Like, the fact that they're feeling such a burden, they're going to try and minimise that, you know, if, if they can. So... It's almost like the fact that they are so obviously injured takes it beyond this point where it's almost taken out of their hands in a way. And the other thing that strikes me about that is when it does get to that situation when you know, it becomes apparent that someone does need help is the degree to which everyone just does mobilise around them. It's not as if there's really anyone in that situation who thinks, oh, you know, I'll, I'll let everyone else take care of it and I'll just make sure I get down the mountain myself. You know, your natural tendency is to want to help out in that situation. And like, I remember a similar situation. It was actually year eight camp when, 
you know, similar thing, sort of doing a probably not as arduous a, a bushwalk that we were doing, but someone basically fell over and I think rolled their ankle in that situation. And it became this like sort of, you know, team mission after that, that we had to, you know, construct a stretcher and basically take turns sort of carrying this stretcher and, and carrying this fellow student sort of off this, you know, it was, it was fairly basic walking track. So it was fairly easy. But at the same time, it was this need that had developed to kind of help this person. Everyone came in around it and, you know, a similar situation. I'm sure, you know, they would have been feeling bad that everyone had to help them. But it was almost like we had this collective goal. Everyone else was, you know, really mobilised and energetic and sort of wanting to do something positive for the situation. So it just suggests to me that there is that real disconnect there, even when it is something like a physical injury, which is so, you know, clear cut and seemingly obvious so when it's something like mental health where you have, for example, feelings of shame involved in it and the tendency would be, I suppose, naturally to want to hide these things if that's what we do with physical health. Absolutely. And look, I'll mention I had to learn a lesson about this the hard way. And you just said how, look, you're known by your friends as being someone who doesn't maybe put up your hand so quickly. Well, I was an extreme that way when I was younger, going through depression. I've talked about this before in the podcast, but when I was about 30, 31, going through a severe depression and I was going down quite quickly. There are all sorts of complications in a situation at work that was really getting to me in different ways. Other things compounded and I was getting more and more depressed. I was struggling to sleep. I was waking up in a sweat every night. I couldn't concentrate as well. And so, look, what happened was it got so bad, my mood became so obviously low that your mum, Sue, she knew something had to happen. I knew something had to happen. But boy, did I have to be dragged kicking and screaming to a next step. What happened at some stages, I realised something different needed to happen and I spoke to a friend. And I refer to him as my friend and mentor, Ross, a very wise and supportive friend. I rang him and said a little bit about the situation. He picked it up very quickly and he said something fairly soon in our conversation whether I would consider going to hospital. Now, it turned out that was the permission I needed to accept that next step because I think I'd been feeling real shame about not being able to manage things so much in myself, but it reached a point where something else had to happen. I needed something else to happen. And anyway, I remember how difficult it was, you know, packing up stuff, heading up to Melbourne. Um, your mum, Sue, was driving me over the Westgate Bridge. In my mind, I'm almost rehearsing how I might jump out of the car at when we stop at lights, you know, before getting to the hospital, hated the idea of being in hospital. I'd been a senior psychologist for four years. I'd worked as a psychologist for 10. I was feeling an absolute failure in myself for being in this situation where I needed to be admitted to a psychiatric hospital from depression. And I thought I might lose all credibility from then on. It was absolutely striking what happened to me when I was admitted. And then over subsequent days in the next week or two, the level of support was absolutely remarkable. Now, of course, from your mum, who is a constant help through that time, through such a dark, difficult time, certainly the hospital staff in many ways, but friends. Friends and family visited, and just the lift I got from Sue visiting your mum and my parents and friends, and I know that some friends were really nervous coming in. They didn't know what to say, but... 
often they just said something that did make a difference, but it was their presence and acceptance. And the way I sometimes describe this is when I was severely depressed, I felt I was falling, falling. I thought of it as like this chilling, deadly pull. I just kept on going down, couldn't stop myself from going down further. And my friends visiting and my parents' love and Sue's support, it was like a net forming strands at my back, like these threads of a net, these strands threading together, then forming this net that helped break my fall. And then after a while, I'm sort of realising that I'm actually stabilising a little bit. And it was actually quite a story in my recovery. It was about a six-month recovery and other things helped a lot in that time. But the first thing that really turned things around, apart from being put in a situation that, dare I say, was more safe, what I needed, and there was the support there, and I did need medication at that time, and different kinds of you know mental health interventions would make a difference. But the main thing I noticed at first is rather than people rejecting me and rather than other people thinking I should be ashamed, there was this love, there was this support, it formed a net, and I learnt something very, very valuable from that time that remained with me ever since, the last 30 years since. There's all that goodwill around, there's all that support around that I might never have known. And even though in the subsequent years I've never needed to draw on support in that particular way, but there have been times I've been able to do with help in different ways or just talk to someone as a confidant or whatever, I've always had so much more ease after that situation. And that's one of the reasons that when I recovered, I never regretted having gone through that depression. Because when I recovered and got back to normal, there was something added that I'd gained from that beyond the understanding of dealing with depression and and recovering from that, which is very helpful as a psychologist. But personally, what I learnt is how much support was available and I no longer felt that sense of shame, if you like, and I could much more accept that idea of being vulnerable in different ways and in the long run finding it was no impediment to my career at all there was no disadvantage actually there was a lot less stigma than I thought there would be even then 30 years ago and these days much less again so that's another story I tell in the hope of encouraging others to be ready to accept the support that's there because there's probably a lot of potential there. Well, it's one that you, you so often hear when people are in like a personal crisis situation is one of the first things that they do kind of when talking about it or when looking back on it or reflecting on it is say, you know, oh, thank you so much to, you know, XYZ for the support that they gave in that situation. And, you know, as you're describing that there, and, you know, this does not reflect on your situation at all, which was, you know, very different to this, but, you know, it made me think that, even when people are in those situations that seem like a completely self-inflicted crisis in terms, you know, someone might be given a press conference for, you know, some indiscretion that they've made and so they're facing the music in front of the media. Even in that situation, quite often, the very first thing they'll say is, look, thank you so much to all the people who have supported me or my family or whoever it is. And, you know, like I reckon they actually, you know, mean that and you know they would feel supported I reckon potentially at times there's an element of sort of wanting to you know maybe look a little bit more popular than you are and sort of looking like you know I've, I've got a whole bunch of people around me but at the same time I reckon when those people are in those sort of self-inflicted situations for lack of a better term and they do say you know thank you so much to you know those people for standing by me and supporting me like I really do think they mean that so it suggests that it's almost as if, you know, we've got something within us that when someone needs support, we're going to give it regardless of the circumstances that they do need it in. 
Yeah, okay. Now, look, actually, something you mentioned there about self-inflicted, it actually does remind me of something that shows that this can be more complicated. And the theme of bringing this up is it's the way we ask for help that can make a difference. Gee, things might go a lot better if we keep on developing our acceptable ways of asking for help. So recognising when we need it and looking at how we ask for it. Because when you mention self-inflicted, we sometimes call it a cry for help if someone is self-harmed. But I suppose we can understand it that over decades, this is probably quite different now, but when people presented to emergency departments after self-harming, it might have been from a drug overdose, it might have been from cutting or something like that. Certainly historically, often people describe the very negative experience that they got after that. For example, sometimes I think if people had taken an overdose, well, the means of like encouraging them to bring up the medication and things like that it was almost designed to be a bit punishing and it's almost like the notion would be, oh, well, that'll teach the person a lesson not to do it again. Well, if we think of it, well, maybe the overdose was a cry for help to elicit other kinds of mental health support. Well, if people's response is a frustrated, even angry response, well, look, you shouldn't have done this, you sort of, you know, taking up our time in the emergency department, you making a nuisance of yourself or whatever. Now, maybe sometimes people perceive that message even when it wasn't there so much. But gosh, it would help if we've got more unmistakable ways of asking for help that aren't self-destructive. And if we've got more unqualified ways of offering that support when it seems that someone is in need of mental health support. So it's actually a complicated kind of situation because there's lots of different indirect ways that people can ask for help that might seem quite manipulative. But underneath it all, there might be a genuine need for some further assistance and support. Someone might be really struggling beyond what they feel capable of managing. But I think just culturally, we actually have some difficulty with accepting and recognising this, and particularly when it's oneself, reaching the point of accepting, hey, this is beyond me, I need some other assistance. Or maybe, if we're not so overwhelmed, still thinking, look, I'll be better off talking with a friend or trusted family member or confidant about this. And that's what we're trying to encourage, because when people access social support for virtually any mental health problem, on average, they recover better and more can be gained from the experience of going through that. It helps put it in a better perspective. Well, I think that's so true. And I wonder as well if, for example, those people who are in a situation where it's almost like they're trying to elicit support, it's not as if they're asking for support, it's almost like they're, they're making someone give them support in a way. I wonder if as well if that highlights almost the need to kind of be proactive when you know, we, we are becoming aware of the fact that we need support because if we don't get onto it at that stage, then potentially we get a little further way down the track and, you know, we're going to be in a situation where we behave in a way that attempts to elicit support, even if it's almost from a subconscious level. It's not as if we're explicitly aware of, of that's even what we're doing. Yes, look, um, what you're describing, it reminds me of a recent session with a client where we were talking about, well, this person had an overdose quite some time ago. And this person was describing how he mainly felt worthy of other people's care and attention, either when he was achieving, like acting with purpose in his work, or if he was sick. 
Because historically, being raised in a situation where there's a fair bit of emotional neglect, even emotional abuse, we could say, that person wasn't used to being treated as though they matter, as though they were worthy. So you can kind of understand if the person, for whatever reason, is stressed and facing difficulties and they no longer feel they can achieve so much at work, but they're trying to manage with things feeling unworthy in themselves, you can understand there might even be an unconscious motivation that comes up to be sick or struggling or unwell and one way that can force the engagement of other people is to be physically harmed. Self-harm could be part of that pattern. So it's a bit simplistic to be dismissive of other people who've acted in a self-harming way as just being silly or wasting resources or causing problems for other people unnecessarily. It might be very difficult for that person to ask for and accept help in a way that even a well-functioning person when they broke their ankle might find it hard to accept the burden it might place on other people. So there's a whole lot that we maybe need to consider further in our ways of asking for and seeking help. And I think, like you say, if we have ways of making it acceptable more broadly for people to be able to put up their hand and acknowledge that they struggle, and if we in ourselves accept that vulnerability at times where sometimes we need or can do with that extra hand and not just pathologise that or not just stigmatise that, then maybe a lot of people are less likely to need to get to the stage of self-harm or otherwise what might seem like more indirect or manipulative behaviours to get that kind of care or attention from others. Well, it's such an interesting point. And it's one of those things, you know, like I'm so fascinated by those elements of psychology, which seem so counterintuitive in a way, you know, you'd think if we want help from people, we're going to think, well, what can we do to kind of elicit that in a positive way? We're not just going to make ourselves look helpless, but I suppose like, you know, and I'm not an evolutionary biologist, dad, so correct me if I'm wrong here, you'd probably know more about this than me, but like what that makes me think is that like, evolution wise you know think way back in the day if we were say in a group of people and we became injured it was almost imperative on sort of everyone within the group to look after that injured person you couldn't necessarily just leave them behind otherwise you know you'd lose one of your tribe you'd lose sort of some of the resources that you had at that time so in that situation it would be kind of mutually beneficial in in that sense for people to look after that person who is injured so I wonder if there's almost a degree to which it almost harkens back to sort of something with kind of deep within our biology in a sense that we almost recognise that we do have this inherent need to help others and collaborate with others. And it's almost like when we are kind of, you know, really authentically feeling helpless in that situation where, you know, we may have felt like we've asked for help, we've tried to elicit help and it's just not working. Well, I wonder if there's a degree to which our subconscious kind of recognises that we kind of had this have this need to collaborate and assist those within our, you know, quote unquote tribe. And it's almost like the subconscious kind of hijacks things and says, well, I, you know, I know how to get some help. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And, you know, whether that's by being sick or behaving in ways that there is that element of potentially a cry for help to it. Yes, so I think that you're really onto something about that tribal and collective thing through evolution. And look, the more I've thought about this, the more that I've thought of mental health being a collective issue. Because I think that the most advanced ways that we can deal with mental health problems or challenge or threat to our well-being 
is collective. And I've changed my views on this a little bit and I realise that uh, I suppose I think about it differently since learning more about polyvagal theory. We've had a previous podcast on this and it talks about different evolutionary stages of dealing with threat. And the most advanced ways of dealing with threat are communal. It's to do with social engagement because it goes like this. The first biological systems for dealing with threat were partly the immobilisation response. That's the freeze-submit response. A rabbit sees a tiger in the distance, it immediately freezes. Now, it's less likely to be seen by the tiger because it's not running against the background. It helps it survive. There's also a submit response. Well, if possums play dead, again, they're less likely to be attacked by a predator. So there's that freeze, that immobilisation submit response as well. That was the first system. Then the next system was the sympathetic nervous system, which was 400 million years ago. The first one was 500 million years ago, then 400 million years ago. Then the fight-flight response. We often associate that with dealing with threat. And then what developed after that? Well, I was thinking, well, what really develops is our frontal lobes, so problem-solving. As an individual, you figure stuff out. You find a way of dealing with this issue or you find a way of sorting that out. And yes, it's true that using our frontal lobes is a really good way of dealing with challenging situations. But that wasn't the main system that developed for dealing with threat. It was the social engagement system that developed about 200 million years ago. Now, what's that to do with? It's to do with our eyes, our facial expression, our larynx, our breathing. The way we communicate with each other, the way we connect with each other, is about this social engagement. It's talking, it's about soothing noises, it's about calming, that kind of thing. And so that's where if we talk with someone in a conversation, that's social engagement. So the parts of our brain and also our nervous system that have developed so much in response to dealing with threat are communal. And so what that means is if someone's in a really difficult situation, they're really struggling, what's the highest level of dealing with that challenge or threat? Is it trying to be all clever and dealing with it in yourself and you keep on trying even if you're struggling and you think it's shameful to not figure it out yourself? Or is it to also draw on assistance? Still you try and use your own frontal lobes, but draw on assistance a bit earlier or accept it even more if you haven't got the answers yourself. That social engagement system. So that's where I think that you know human beings are social animals. So much of how we've evolved further as you say has been in a tribal context why don't we get that message and then look to draw on that communal connection rather than just be isolated individuals trying to handle things just within our own head well it's i i just find this stuff so fascinating dad and i think that's just absolutely so true and i've been listening to a lecture series recently on on youtube and to be honest it's probably the most fascinating thing i've ever heard it's called awakening from the meaning crisis by this canadian professor john vervaki his name is he's cognitive scientist guy who's you know really into sort of anthropology and history and all this sort of stuff it's just so interesting and it reminded me as you were saying that of something that came up the other day it might even be the first episode if anyone is interested in watching this series but he was talking about human evolution in a way and he was saying that basically around the time at the end of the last ice age the human population basically shrank to the size of i think they reckon it was around seventy thousand individuals so basically not that many people living on earth and 
the way that the humans who were living then adapted to that, I suppose, environment and, and the way that things were at that time is that they became more socialised with each other. And, and the thing that I find so interesting about this is we still have the remnants of some of this today. So, for example, I'd, I'd almost take it one step further of, of sort of what you were saying before in terms of like, yes, we have elements of social cohesion kind of encoded within us is what I take you to be saying there. But I would almost go one step further and say in some ways it is kind of what makes us human. It's sort of what makes us distinct from certainly other animals on the earth sort of thing. But I suppose to go back to this idea of, you know, 70,000 years ago, the, the number of humans on earth drastically reduced. And in order to ensure our survival, we had to find a way to collaborate a lot better. And so this is where, for example, we have things like, you know, many cultures will have a handshake kind of ritual where, you know, you're basically, you know, whether it be touching hands or arms, but you have a way to show someone that you're not carrying a weapon and your your muscles aren't overly tense at that time. Or, you know, even the way that we, you know, greet people and say goodbye to people and say please and thank you for things. It's almost like within us, you know, there's almost a somatic feeling when you don't I suppose, engage in those social conventions. Like you might meet someone at a party and you haven't been introduced to them. It sort of feels a little bit strange. There's a little bit of a kind of weird distance there that almost you feel within yourself. It's not like a a rational, logical thing that you experience, but it's almost like without going through this ritual of greeting someone, this kind of collaborative ritual that we've developed kind of as humans, it, it just feels a little bit off. And so what that leads me to think is that, you know, if we look back at, say, history when, you know, it, it was required in order to, for example, say, trade over bigger areas so we had more access to resources, like we needed to collaborate with strangers in a way. And so it seems to me that we have literally encoded these collaborative kind of mechanisms and tools within us to the point where, like I was saying before, you know, in, in some ways our subconscious can recognise that these systems are there and, you know, almost like hijack them in a way. It's like we have such a, a deep, inherent realisation that we are collaborative that even when kind of our rational brain is thinking one thing, well, it's almost like our, our kind of needs can lead us to behave in another way that seeks out that support, even if our kind of rational, logical brain is disagreeing with that behaviour. Yeah, so what you're saying, that, that's so interesting, that sort of background, that evolutionary and cultural background too, and highlighting that collective issue. So as sometimes they say humans are a herd animal, but over and above that we've got all these further elaborated like cultural systems where we are part of a collective and we draw on that support. So in that context, like then I think it's fascinating, well, concerning as well that why is there a relatively high incidence of suicide amongst school principals? Like clearly there's some of the most resourceful people in the community. But is that this aspect where, oh, but they're expected to handle things on their own, partly because they are so resourceful? Actually, I can also think of another group of people that I've known who've really struggled in the earlier days especially were elite footballers because it's almost like they expected themselves as community figures to be above that vulnerability or difficulty of struggling. So there was this over-stoic kind of response and a real lack of acceptance of when they were depressed, just like I had that lack of acceptance because I was a senior psychologist and I thought I should have been above that myself in some way. I should have been able to figure it out all myself. But I think school principals, that example. So there's that notion of if people 
somehow expect themselves to be apart from others and managing it just within themselves, that makes us more vulnerable because we're not using those best human mechanisms, partly for dealing with stress or easing our stress. I suppose it's partly why we sometimes say that, you know, burden shared is a burden halved, you know, that, that kind of idea. Unless we draw on that principle, then people are going to be struggling way more than perhaps they need to. Well, it's so true and, you know, this is a little bit grim in some ways, but, like, what that leads me to think is, like, I find it so interesting that, for example, suicide is, a, a, you know, it's a big issue in, in today's society and it seems to me that there's an element when people do make that decision to take their life that they think that people would be better off without them in a way and it's almost like you hear of these situations where people don't seek out that support and... I suppose you contradict that. You contrast that with someone like, for example, Aaron Rolston, who was the hiker who had his arm trapped under a boulder in America and he's, you know, stuck there for, was 127 hours and cut his arm off with a pen knife sort of thing and was able to get himself out of there. It's like, how is it that the kind of guilt and shame involved in seeking help can override this survival mechanism that is, you know, basically within all of us and it leads people to kind of you know, find themselves getting out of that horrendous situation where you're stuck under a boulder and there's nothing you can do but to chop your arm off. It's like people would rather chop their arm off than seek help in a way. And so that just leads me to think that, you know, there, there must be some parallel processes going on at the same time for us to, I suppose, skew our priorities in that way, that within us we have this survival mechanism that allows us to basically in any situation do whatever it takes to survive Except then, in other ways, you know, all we'd need to do in, in some ways is ask for help and, and that's still prohibitive. Yes, I think one difference there that relates to depression. And so generally when people are suicidal, not always, but usually people are going to be experiencing depression and unfortunately that colours people's thinking in a very negative direction. And so there's a very important issue with this in relation to suicide. When I was very depressed and hospitalised and suicidal, I was absolutely convinced that other people would be better off without me, family, friends, everybody would be better off without me, but I thought that they would mistakenly believe that they wouldn't be better off without me. So I was kind of aware that other people might not think they'd be better off without me, but I thought they were wrong. And I was convinced of that partly because of the depressive thinking being so dark and black. I used this expression in my own mind, paint it black. Anything I thought of, my past history, I'd view it in negative terms. If I thought of the future, in negative terms. If I thought of other people or my relationships with other people, everything I thought of in negative terms. And that kind of aspect of thinking, turning negative, can lead people to mistakenly believe that other people would be better off without them, which is almost always not true. But it can be such a conviction. And I felt that as a conviction at the time, and I'm partly saying that because I know that with many clients, they've had that conviction as well. And it's important that we counter that. And that's when we pick up that people are distressed in some ways. Sometimes it's important to just check straight out how people are thinking and feeling about things. Like certainly we can do that in a therapist kind of situation, ask people straight out. And I highlight that because it's so dangerous for people to feel that way, but it's not uncommon. 
And so if someone does feel that way, just question that kind of thinking as probably coloured by that depressive negative filter as we describe it. And if we suspect that someone close to us is severely depressed or otherwise we know they're suicidal, sometimes it's worth addressing that directly and say, hey, look, if you've got thoughts along these lines, that is not true. That can be the depression doing the talking if you think like that. Well, I think that's absolutely true. And oh, look, I can say from a little bit of experience, you know, anyone who's been around that sort of thing, it's just absolutely so far from the case. And it's one of the things that you really do resolve, I suppose, when you are close to that is, you know, I, I could never do that in terms of when you do have, a, I suppose, a distinct concept of what it's like. It's, uh, yeah, you, you wouldn't necessarily want to put that on anyone else sort of thing. But I think it also highlights the degree to which dad... I think there's an element to which culturally we've developed a bit of individualism around psychology. And like we've spoken about this a little bit in the past, but even in the way that when someone does, you know, require assistance, so often we'll say, you know, go see a psychologist, for example. And in a way that is still kind of individualistic because it's kind of about empowering the individual in a way it's sort of saying you know go it and say for example build your resilience in this environment or it's you know go and, and build your resources and it's not as if it's setting up I suppose a social infrastructure like for example I wonder if maybe other cultures would or I wonder if you could just speak to that idea because it seems to me that there's an element of even asking for help and even maybe giving help in a way that it can be so individualistic. For example, the way that we give help at times, it can almost be a bit unilateral of, you know, I, I know what's best for you in this situation. And, you know, if you're coming to me for help, then we're just going to do it my way sort of thing. Is that your experience too? Well, certainly I think our culture is too individualistic and I think the psychological field is too individualistic. Actually, this was a little bit of a theme on a recent podcast episode about groups, about therapy groups and how helpful they can be. And generally, that's not a very common form of intervention compared to the amount of one-to-one psychology sessions that there are or seeing any mental health professional. Often it's individual therapy or individual consultations. And there's all this notion about confidentiality and privacy. Now, some of these things can be important, but I think it's really overdone. And I think that where this can be undermining is it can distract people away from the other resources that there might be available now. So I think a number of people, if they saw the title of this episode being Heeding the Need to Ask for Help, they might think it's a recommendation that someone book in to see a mental health professional like a psychologist. But what we're saying is there's so many different forms of help that might be available. If people care about you, and many people will, friends, family, colleagues, sure, mental health professionals, other health professionals, a sporting coach, a mentor, someone else that you're in a club with, a sporting club with, there are lots of people around us who might be there to lend an ear or otherwise engage with us in some kind of supportive way if they know that we're struggling. Now sure it's important to pick our mark, someone that we trust and a context that suits. We're not just going to be for example uh, playing tennis with a friend and suddenly bring out some really major personal problem when there's only five minutes to talk about something or something like that or there are other people around. Sure it's going to be a particular situation that we're going to look for. But the goodwill is going to be there. I found that so much when I was also recovering from depression. 
just the way that people checked in with me. Other work colleagues who'd been friends beforehand as well. Nothing overdone, but you could just see that there was some goodwill coming back. So in a practical sense, like that fellow who'd broken his leg on Mount Gower, it's not like everyone needed to be an orthopaedic surgeon to help him or everyone needed to have a stretcher. Even those who were around him at the time, who were first at the scene, looked to do what we could, even showing that we knew where he was, that help was coming, even keeping ourselves calm and looking to say something encouraging or if he's saying, sorry, sorry, and we're saying, look, it's not your fault. You know, anyone could have been in that position. There are different ways of offering support too, other than being an orthopaedic surgeon. So part of the idea is if we're struggling, it doesn't have to be a psychologist that we see or a mental health professional. It doesn't have to be someone who's got some major expertise in dealing with that particular problem sometimes it's just a listening ear sometimes it's just that someone knows that you're struggling and maybe can say something with a degree of empathy maybe it's just being able to be with someone who knows that you're struggling and they're not getting too worked up about it and they're certainly not judging you for it that actually is some of the most helpful things of all because when people have mental health problems Commonly, as we've talked about before, the biggest difficulty they have is not so much their depression or their panic attacks or their trauma reactions. It's their feeling of shame that they shouldn't have these problems. It's their non-acceptance of having them. Now, that's where if we're a little bit open to drawing on other people's goodwill and support, that reduces the shame. It reduces the kind of feeling of non-acceptance. It helps us accept being ourselves as we are at that time. And I certainly experienced the profound benefit of that many years ago. And look, the other thing that I've mentioned from that experience, as I've said, I've drawn more on support from other people since and confided in people more easily and not felt that I was an idiot or hopeless for doing that, have a different view after having gone through that experience before. And we're encouraging people also, like our clients, we look to encourage them to draw on support from other people as well. But certainly people listening to this podcast in whatever situation, that's what we're urging people to do, to consider our ways of being open to and seeking help when we could do with it. I'm sure you'd be able to relate to this, Dad, and you know you described it a little bit there, but yeah, this is certainly something that I think I personally maybe oversubscribed to a little bit, and it sounds like what you were saying there in terms of coming to that realisation that you needed to draw on social supports a bit more. Maybe you overprescribed to this one a little bit as well, but like it, it is such an interesting thing because, as I say, I've maybe come to realise that as I get a little bit older, there is maybe this attitude that I've got that I tend to be a little bit too individualistic in ways. And I suppose one way that I've almost come to reframe it in a way that I find helps with me anyway, because I think with, with help, you know, even inherently with this idea of help, like it almost implies that you're lacking something that someone else can provide in a way. And so I almost reframe it as you know I'm, I'm not necessarily looking for help as much as I'm looking for a different perspective because you know no one's going to be arrogant enough to think they've sort of got it worked out to the point of not needing any different perspectives but at the same time I think that's slightly different from asking for help in a way and, and I suppose part of it is in some ways it's wanting to retain a sense of agency and, and I suppose even maybe a sense of dignity as well because I think there can be maybe a way of potentially even going too far the other way of when you are in a position where you do need help, 
well, you can feel in some ways diminished or invalidated or like it, it can be tough. Like as we were saying, that the fellow with his leg, like that's a, it's an obvious situation where someone needs help. But even in that situation, he still felt difficult to accept that he did need help. So I suppose there's almost this balance to be had in terms of recognising that, yeah, like it's certainly great to draw on these supports but it seems to me that there's a way to go about it that does retain this sense of agency. It's more of a collaboration. It's like you're co-opting someone into sort of, you know, finding a solution with you rather than just simply asking someone for advice that you're going to unilaterally take. And I suppose it's, you know, you're just going to go their way or the highway sort of thing. Okay, so a couple of background things here. One is, I think, the risk of being overstoic. So where it comes up the risk of being overstoic and not being ready to ask for help is, say, trauma reactions and having worked a lot in the area of post-traumatic stress and with many people from different areas and walks of life and work backgrounds with post-traumatic stress, what you see is the extra difficulty people have when they've come from stoic professions. So that's where you get, say, police with post-traumatic stress or certainly soldiers, Vietnam War veterans, I work with many of them who had this stoicism. Prison officers is another group, probably paramedics, first responders in certain situations and, dare I say as well, school principals might come into this. The professions where people have this expectation of the stiff upper lip and being stoic tended to have more problems, for example, if they faced a very major trauma situation because in expecting themselves to deal with it all within themselves then if they were having problems with sleep or anger reactions or concentration they would tend to keep it more to themselves and it could tend to get worse but there are actually two main ways that people could have a worse response from a trauma situation one is if they're overstoic and they think hey this should be um, something I can just deal with. You know, I'm Superman. But the other problem people would have if they saw themselves as being overly vulnerable. Oh, I can't handle things. I can't handle stress. I've been vulnerable because of things that have happened in my life before or I'm just not good at dealing with anxiety or something like that. We also know that those people have an extra feeling of vulnerability, if you like, in that way, that they may be not accepting too well well, that's where people tend to go worse as well. So I think there's some clues that we're not talking about being overstoic and like Superman or Superwoman, but nor are we talking about dropping like a sack of potatoes so other people you know, come in and, and help us. And that's where you get the problem of the indirect cries for help, which can include self-harm in a range of different ways. They're more helpless ways, if you like, and indirect ways of seeking help. So what we're looking at is still having some sense of agency still being able to be ourselves and recognise that we do have resourcefulness and strengths and we're likely to come through difficult situations. We're likely to have a range of ways that bolster our resilience and we might also benefit from drawing on support from others in certain ways. And one way might be, as you described, getting another perspective on a situation. But it might be also asking for practical assistance with running an errand or with child minding for a period of time, or some other task that someone feels a bit overwhelmed with. Or it might be just asking for a listening ear without giving another perspective. Or it might be looking for a comforting hug. The thing is, if we can find ways of asking 
more directly for what we need or accepting what we need and accepting ourselves in responding to that while still looking to be resourceful in our own ways where we can, then that also makes it easy for others to help us rather than either not help us or rescue us. That's a big deal in terms of, say, mental health therapies and all the rest of it, looking to help people rather than rescue them. In most situations, we don't need to be rescued, although that time years ago, I needed a little bit of rescuing when I went into hospital for that period of time. But often it's looking at our ways of eliciting help and maybe if we can elicit help a little sooner rather than a little later and we can accept that and be upfront about that and not ashamed about that, maybe we're less likely to need to be rescued down the track. Well, I think that's such an important point, that idea of helping versus rescuing, because, you know, in some way, it's like what we were talking about before, like if you get to that stage where you're eliciting assistance from someone, like in many ways, like it's rather pleasant to be rescued in a way, you know, you've, you've got people sort of, you know, giving you all that attention and all this sort of thing. So I suppose it is a little bit of a trap to fall into in some ways. And like I, I relate to this in some ways, dad, because I, I reckon there was a time when I sort of maybe went a little bit too far down the needing to be rescued sort of way of things. And remember when I was working in politics, actually, it was sort of, you know, a few years ago. And, um, basically I was in this situation where I'd come home from, you know, university sort of six months earlier and, you know, it's still basically largely affected by, you know, the death of my friend at this time. And I remember being in this situation where the election was going on, working, you know, long hours and just feeling, you know, what I'm going through on a personal level was just the most unimportant thing in the world. And I suppose in some ways it snapped me out of this feeling that I had, which was kind of identifying myself through this, I suppose, trauma that I was going through at a time because I'd been through so many situations, say, over the previous, say, six months to a year or whatever it was where, you know, you'd sit down with someone and I'd, you know, tell my story in terms of, you know, I'd open up to them. You know, it wasn't necessarily something I'd, I'd open up to everyone, but when I did open up to people, geez, that was, like, so pleasant in a way to sort of have people empathise with you and almost, like, give you that understanding where you just felt heard and validated and understood and then I was almost in this, you know, sort of, say, like, politics where it was, you know, the election was on and, you know, you're working for a party, so, you know, it's not about you and sort of your individual things. And in some ways, you know, I had to find a way to sort of just kind of snap out of that and really, I suppose, not find it important, in, you know, in a practical sense that people even knew that that was a thing that I was dealing with and all this sort of stuff. So it was so interesting to go through that experience because I went I think you know as I'm saying potentially I went too far the other way and sort of maybe tried to deal with things you know all on my own a little bit too much but I suppose it just led me to recognize that there is a balance to be had in terms of you know there was a time when I probably you know did need a little bit of that empathy I needed just that you know support that unconditional support of people just sort of listening and you know saying you know, I understand or at least I'm trying to understand but I suppose like I I also look back at it now and I do think that I gained benefit from being in that situation where it was just come on you know get on with it now you know we'll find a way to sort of park this and you know sort of deal with it in the future it was almost like there was a, a balance to be had that I recognized in that situation. Yes so like as you described that one of the things that is going through my mind is that we might all reflect on what kinds of help do we tend to also receive from other people are we receiving much? Are we receiving little? Do we think not enough in certain ways? Do we think almost too much in other kind of ways? Because the chances are what we're receiving is a little bit 
to do with what messages that we're putting out. So what help we're receiving or not receiving is probably related a little bit to how we're interacting with others. So we can influence that. And so the theme of this podcast is how we might influence that in positive directions. And so one part of that, I imagine, is just being attuned to how other people do help us and how we help other people. And part of that, I imagine, would be even reflecting on that COVID era. You know, those couple of years, the first couple of years, when all of us were in a really difficult boat, I'll bet most of us, if we think of our family and friends and in our homes, there would have been lots of little ways that people would have been trying to help each other or lift their mood or even give each other space or adapt to each other's like work roles that now are happening in the home. I bet there were all sorts of things that people were doing with each other, including being able to say if they were struggling in some ways or show some support or empathy in different ways. So that's something that we can reflect on through personal experience. What kind of help do we receive? What made a difference? What were we offering to other people? Just reflecting on that and our ways of asking for, receiving and giving help. Well, I think that's so true. And it's almost that idea as well. Of I think you come across people who want to help and others maybe who want to rescue a little bit. I think you even see this in a political context at some times of, you know, when people are trying so hard to help that it comes across as rescuing, there's almost this element of, well, you're actually kind of looking down on someone if you really, you know, do think that, you know, they're always in need of so much help. It is actually like you're robbing someone of that agency and that dignity. And like, I think back to friendships that, for example, you know, they have been that, I suppose, helping, collaborative, supportive kind of friendship. There's almost this element to it where, you know, it's not even explicit in terms of, you know, today I, I really need help and can we talk about this thing? There's almost just like this kind of unwritten understanding like I, I think to a couple of friends back in university dad when you know a few of us were having a bit of a tough time and it was almost this sense that when someone was struggling on a day the others would be up and the others would kind of help them through it and then someone else would be struggling on another day and then you'd help them in that situation but it wasn't even really a conscious thing it was almost just this kind of reflection that I had later on that it was almost just like you know as, as friends we just kind of you know I suppose intertwined and almost worked really well as a friendship in terms of you know the days that I was feeling sort of down that would be in a situation to bring me up and, and vice versa and I wonder to what degree there's an element to which you know subconsciously like we've been talking about there's an element within our biological encoding that this stuff is developed and I wonder to what degree when you are I suppose in tune with someone in a friendship sense that there's almost this unwritten understanding of I suppose, roles that you can take on in certain situations. Like, for example, if you come across your friend and you recognise, you see something within them that, you know, they're feeling a little bit down today, without even sort of realising it, you might think, oh, you know, how can I cheer them up? Or how can we make this more of a, a positive experience? And then, you know, when you're feeling a little bit down, then they might sort of subconsciously even recognise within you that you're a little bit down in that day. And so I can just think back to some friendships when, you know, it's not as if you're even you know, sought out their help at different times. It was almost just this unwritten thing that, you know, they recognised a little bit within you and may not even, you know, have explicitly recognised, but they just acted in a way that lifts you up a little bit. It's almost as if it's a silent recognition and they just, I suppose, changed their behaviour to be slightly more supportive. So 
I suppose, you know, for me anyway, that was something that I probably only realised looking back on it too. So I guess I'd invite people to think for themselves, maybe there are those friendships where, you know, you you just feel uplifted for whatever reason afterwards. Even on those days, you might be feeling a little bit down, but, you know, you spend a bit of time together and there is just that, I suppose, buoyant mood that, that comes out of being with that person. And it might be completely subconscious the way that you have that relationship and are able to, I suppose, kind of collaborate and interact with each other. But it does just strike me the degree to which, you know, with some friends, you know, you spend that much time together and it is just almost like, you know, you're never really down at the same time that, you know, you might be down, but they'll lift you up and and vice versa. Yes, I think that's a good example that often people might give and receive support at a non-verbal level. So it doesn't always have to be spelt out. Sometimes it can be helpful to be able to use words as well, to actually spell it out and ask for help, literally, just like that person who broke his ankle, he had to yell help in that situation. Maybe there's some situations where it's worth stepping it up a bit and really seeing the message gets across and accepting sometimes we need to be in that situation. On a more everyday basis, I think it's what you're saying. It will be more non-verbal. It will be partly more intuitive will be picking up a little bit if someone's in a low mood could do with some cheering up or just otherwise the way we interact with each other it's based a bit on that kind of empathy and feel isn't it so it doesn't always have to be spelt out in words but I think even then if people in retrospect in whatever way can show their appreciation for the support that others gave or every now and then just say something or acknowledge in some way you know, the appreciation for that friend's support or love or friendship. And another thing you're describing there is the benefit of quantity time. Not just quality time, but quantity time. When we spend time with friends and family members, we're more likely to pick up on those feelings that they have more emotionally or intuitively. So that's another point. If people are struggling, try not to get too isolated. It's tempting when you're stressed to be a bit more on your own, to maybe keep things a little bit more to yourself or whatever. Watch out for that. We see that with many clients who are dealing with depression or anxiety reactions or trauma reactions. People tend to get a bit more isolative and it works against recovery because there will be people around generally who can offer some level of support and goodwill. So look to keep up some contact with friends. Look to interact with your family members. Look to interact a little bit, say, with work colleagues or others because those everyday contacts can make a real difference. Don't let yourself get too isolated. And I think, you know, this is something that we, I think, are coming to realise a little bit more, Dad. Like you were using the uh, the example off air on that show, Ted Lasso, of I suppose how they, they model in some ways a more developed interaction amongst guys. Do you want to mention what you were saying to me? I don't want to steal your thunder with that one. So what were you telling me off air about uh, about Ted Lasso? Okay, well, look, you were mentioning Ted Lasso as a program earlier, and I knew I'd enjoy it when got round to watch it, but I just love it. I think it's hilarious. But in some of the more recent episodes of Ted Lasso, he as a coach gets together these guys to talk about someone's personal problem. And the hilarious thing about this is Ted Lasso, this coach guy who's got all this folk wisdom, he's a bit comfortable with the idea of just calling in these other other blokes to talk about someone's problem. But 
individuals aren't always so comfortable with that. And I thought it was just hilarious when they're talking about the problems, for example, of one guy who is a top footballer now becomes a coach, Roy. And Roy's a real stoic, gruff guy. If he's frustrated about something, he might just sort of groan like, or something like that. He doesn't put things in words very well. It's just hilarious when Ted Lasso calls these group of guys together to discuss this fellow's personal problem. And so they call themselves the Diamond Dogs. And so when they talk about someone's problem, they go, to be this like little collective kind of group of dogs kind of thing. But the hilarious thing is how excruciatingly almost they talk about the very personal problems of whether it be Roy or another coach Beard or some other kind of character. And it just makes you realise how rare it is. Well, I think it's pretty rare in everyday life for guys to get together and talk about things as openly as that. You can see just how uncomfortable and cringing some guys feel about it but then you can tell also actually there's a point to this there's some group wisdom that comes up and there's some real support and there's actually even a good feeling that's left at the end and I thought that was a great spoof for making fun at how blokes find this really hard to do well it is uh, yeah that is that is hilarious I do love that about Ted Lasso where you know you watch it at one time you think it's a little bit silly and then it's almost like over the course of the next week that kind of five layers above the joke hit you and you realise, oh, gee, that's actually quite profound, even though it seems sort of whimsical and stupid. But, no, I'm glad you're enjoying it, Dad. We'll, uh, we'll have to have a chat off there about that one. But I suppose, Dad, just a, a, a final question because, you know, it'd be remiss of us not to acknowledge it in a way in terms of, you know, there is going to be times when people don't necessarily have that, I suppose, infrastructure of social support around them. They don't necessarily have those people that they can call on regularly. And so what what should people do in that situation when they might be a little bit more socially isolated or or marginalised even at times? Generally, the first thing I think if people are really stuck in their social support network, they can't think of someone, go and see your GP or go and see a GP first is often a good idea because they'll often be aware of different supports that are around and GPs help people not just with their physical health but their mental health. As a matter of fact, probably most GP consultations, there'll be a mental health element to it because mind and body work together and stress that comes up in our lives, which is partly a mental and emotional thing, can affect our bodies. So that's one thing. Think of talking with a GP. Think of any friends or family that you might confide in or mention that you're struggling to. Even if you're not looking for them to do anything, you might even say, I don't want you to do anything. But just think of who in your network there might be. If not a particular GP, is there someone else in your network of health professionals that you've had contact with. Who knows, you might have seen a podiatrist, you might have seen a chiropractor, you might have seen someone for a different kind of purpose or whatever, mentioned to them. If someone's a student, maybe mentioned to a lecturer. If someone's in some other situation where you come across and otherwise might be a co-worker. Like if we're not in a life role like, say, being a lighthouse keeper on our own, there's probably someone around. And I'm sure even a lighthouse keeper probably has someone to ring, even if it's another lighthouse keeper. So the idea is think broadly, first of all, of who in person you might approach, 
but very much there's also Lifeline. There'll be services, and particularly Lifeline, I think, is a very good port of call. There might be other call lines beyond Blue or others as well. But I think that if someone feels really isolated, and that's part of the reason they're calling Lifeline, let the person know that you don't have anyone else you feel you can talk to and make that part of the issue. Because all of us ought to have at least a couple of people we could talk to if we're feeling overwhelmed or struggling. I think they're all absolutely brilliant points. And I think I'll also just make a point in terms of, you know, like I think we can be a bit creative with our social infrastructure as well. Like I suppose one thing, Dad, that I, I really got benefit from over the last year, that I never thought I would, you know, before I used it, thought it was an absolute cesspit. And that's Twitter. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely love Twitter. Spend, you know, probably too much time on it in some ways. But, like, had this kind of weird experience the other day where someone had, had commented on something, you know, for whatever reason, I was drawn to their profile. So I clicked on their, their profile. Someone I'd come across before. And so I clicked on their profile and had the experience where, you know, in their bio or whatever, it said, Geelong Cats fan, Newcastle United fan, South Sydney uh, Rabbitohs fan, and Canberra Brumbies fan. And they're, they're my teams. They're, that's my, you know, what I thought was a unique combination of teams that I follow. And, you know, at first it was all like, geez, this is, this is a little bit confronting in a way that, you know, I thought I was, I thought it was a bit more unique than this. <laughs> but at the same time, you think about it for, you know, more than a second and you realise, this guy would just be the absolute best friend of mine if we were to, you know, ever sort of get in touch sort of thing. And so, you know, even I, I didn't even sort of chat to the guy, but it was just this weird thing of like, this guy's just got all the exact same interests as I do, sort of, you know, on Twitter. Just would never have come across this sort of person. But the other thing about Twitter, and like one of the things I, I quite enjoy doing sometimes is, you know, you come across people who, you know, you really enjoy what they do. They might be a journalist, might be a podcaster, comedian, whatever it is. And quite a few people have their like messages open. And so you can literally say to someone, hey, I just wanted to let you know, I really enjoy what you're doing. You know, I've, I've gotten a lot out of this. You know, maybe this one particular thing that I saw, I gained, you know, this value in it. I just wanted to say thank you. And so often those people will get back and say, oh, you know, I really appreciate that. And, you know, you can have a two or three message conversation with these people who, you know, you really respect in a way. And, you know, if they don't get back to you, so be it. You've still, you know compliments them and you know you still appreciate what they do and all this sort of stuff but at the same time some do and then you can have this you know little interaction and you know even just I suppose you know putting positivity out there in a way kind of makes you feel good but whether it be social media or you know there's a whole range of even sort of forums and stuff where you know the, the one that I always go back to dad is, is there's a guy Clint Salter who quite famous now sort of goes around the world but he basically he started a podcast of dance studio owners which you'd think would just be the most niche group of people and he was able to cultivate a community of dance studio owners and basically build a profile and sort of worked his way up from there and now goes around the world doing speaking at things for entrepreneurs and this sort of thing but you just think you know even 20 years ago 10 years ago oh, I think he was actually around 10 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago. If you're a dance studio owner, you know, even in maybe a small town, you might be thinking, gosh, I'm the, the only one doing this. Who have I got to, you know, even chat to or who's going to understand, you know, what I'm doing? But, you know, there's, there's podcasts out there these days or, you know, YouTube channels or, you know, there's people who are putting themselves out there with such niche interests 
And I think if you've got one of those interests and you come across, you know, people doing a similar thing, like you do get a bit of a boon from that, just recognising that, hold on, I'm, I'm not completely off on my own in terms of this set of interests that I have or what I'm into in this situation. It's like you can cultivate community. You don't even necessarily have to have a direct interaction with those people. I really like that idea, the notion that there are like-minded people out there who even if we haven't met those people, just being aware that there are like-minded people out there can make such a difference. So whereas I think it's just great to have those direct personal connections, I think that's in a sense the best quality of connection that there can be. But still I suppose you've got me wondering, let's just say if a lighthouse keeper thinks of themselves as being part of a community of lighthouse keepers, then hey, in a sense, you're not alone. And that's part of what we're looking at here, not to allow yourself to feel isolated and alone. It's one thing to be struggling with a problem, but if you're struggling and isolated, that's a very different situation. Don't allow that to happen. If you're really struggling, the whole idea is heed the need to reach out for help. In some way, in your own way, reach out for help. No disgrace in that. I think that's so true, Dad. And, you know, even, you know, it reminds me what you're saying there in terms of the, uh, the fella that you spoke about at the start of the podcast. Like, he might have called out for help, but, you know, in some ways he didn't even really reach out for help in terms of he would have, you know, felt a burden and he probably would have regretted in some ways reaching out for help that, it, you know, it took him 14 hours to get down. But, you know, it really just does strike me talking about this sort of stuff that, you know, with a physical injury, it's almost like it is taken out of our hands in a way and it does mobilise people to help and, and, you know, want to help and do whatever they can and support in that situation and, yeah, with, with mental illness, you know, it is likely that people will feel that similar burden. But I think if we can find a way to, I suppose, be proactive about it, and maybe it's not necessarily even, you know, asking for help when we find ourselves in a situation where we need it. Maybe it's before that, maybe collaborating with a few people who have maybe some different experiences and perspectives and, and maybe there are other ways to, I suppose, harness that help without, I suppose, so explicitly just going to someone and saying, hey, can you you know, help me in this situation. Yes, well, I think it's one of the most important issues that we've discussed, Rowan. And as we were discussing before this podcast, actually, over a period of time, it's becoming clear that a number of our episodes have a theme in some way that relates to social support. But if we're going to mobilise that social support, it's going to make a difference how we ask for help. Absolutely. And we do have those episodes. I'll put them up on the episode page for today at psychspills.com.au. And those episodes are we had supporting someone to seek help, we had seeking a suitable psychologist, and the sustenance of social support. Gosh, Daddy, as I say all those one after the other, I reckon uh, it was good we went for a rhyme rather than alliteration this week because uh, we, we clearly love it. But uh, I suppose just one tiny little thing that's just come to mind, Dad, I couldn't leave it out because. To me, it's just, you know, it's given this an extra arm to it in some ways. And that's, you know, I think Ash Barty, for example, who's in some way, you know, world number one when she was playing and is seen as the pinnacle of performance. But one of the things about Ash Barty is she contextualised all of her individual success in terms of her team. She'd say, you know, we this, we that, my team, my team, and... It seems to me that, you know, even at that level in terms of like, well, she could have been individualistic about it as maybe, you know, tennis players have been in the past. 
But it seems that she recognised that in order to get the most out of herself, she needed to draw on those social supports. And to me, it's the same principle. It's, you know, if, you, if you've got the number one tennis player in the world who's, you know, arguably one of the, the highest performing female tennis players of certainly the last sort of 20 years or so, and she's recognising that she needs to draw on social supports in order to get the most out of herself, well, why would it be any different when we're feeling badly in a situation like the principle to me is that you know social supports allow us access to more resources and and that seems to work even if you know we're we're looking at high performance as well as when we're in situations where we're not feeling so good good point rowan and with all this talk about sport i'm aware that i'm really looking forward to ted lasso again tonight 